Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Formula One is back at Suzuka this weekend, a track that's a perennial favourite with drivers and fans alike, for very good reasons. But is it F1's best track, or merely one of the best? That's one of the questions we'll be answering on this Japanese Grand Prix preview podcast. Now I'm joined by, well, two slightly dangerous guests in tandem, I would say, for reasons that will probably become obvious. First we have Stuart Codling, who in himself is always a, a dangerous, uh, dangerous guest, bringing all your catering industry experience to this podcast as always. Uh, yeah, and also quite a few puns occasionally, if I'm permitted, or if, if they even make the edit, how do I know which ones will end up falling upon stony ground and disappearing onto the editing room floor? A high-quality pun will always make the edit, so um, not many of yours do. Uh, and and, and this, is, this is why it's so dangerous, because my other guest is uh, Jake Boxall Leg, also fond of a pun. So I'm a bit worried about these two. Yes, uh, I think this is going to be either brilliant or you are going to be in 10 minutes time sitting on the sofa in uh, a pool of despair because there are some times when i'm editing stuff in the autosport.com cms that that jbl has written and even i who am fond of whimsy think i can't let you get away with that i'm gonna to have to save you from that and i have to do a little bit of shimmying in there to, so, to i've noticed did, did, <laughs> i've noticed codders i apologize i apologize sometimes, sometimes i have to in in the words of the former chief sub-editor of f1 racing mate i saved you from yourself where was he from <laughs> he's, he was actually a new zealander <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's uh, please. Can our New Zealand listeners not complain about? Yeah, we'll that have to throw that impression in the bun. <laughs> oh dear, the well, sun bun. 
I think it's time to uh, to move on with more serious <laughs> matters and talk a little bit about uh, about Suzuka. Now, Codders is often cited as a favourite circuit. It's a great place, Suzuka, isn't it? Everyone always loves going there, even though it takes a bit of a <laughs> bit of time to get there. Is it the best track on the F1 calendar? Tricky question to answer. I think it's a fabulous circuit. It's brilliantly atmospheric, and the to my mind, the the question mark comes about over whether it's actually great for racing because it's a fantastic circuit for the drivers. It's really challenging and almost every single corner has something different going for it. And and it kind of almost organically throws challenges at the drivers of the sort of order that Herman Tilke desperately tries to engineer into his circuits and sometimes fails, ends up just sort of having random camber changes in an attempt to force mistakes. There's loads of places where you can kind of just naturally have a mistake under braking or just getting a, getting a wheel on the grass or on um, a curb, setting it up for one of these high-speed corners. So it's, it's challenging for the drivers. Whether it makes for great racing for the people at home, I'm not for sure, uh, not, not so sure. I think there are other circuits that maybe set up greater spectacle for the people sitting at home. But for the people at the track and for the people racing on it, it's certainly up there in the top three. JBL might have a different opinion. Uh, I'm, I, I think I'm kind of with you on this one in that it looks like a fantastically technical circuit. I can imagine if you're a driver, it's a lot of fun to do. It's basically, you know, it's like a figure of eight. It's like a bit of a go-kart track. Um, they can experience every different type of corner. The the run up through 130R up to the Casio Triangle, fantastic overtaking spot as well. But apart from that, and unless you're Kamui Kobayashi and you're blasting past people at the hairpin, there's not too many places where you can get past. And it's a little bit difficult to, to kind of see that spectacle. Whereas if we're asking what we think the best track is, personally speaking, I am very much in favor of the Rebel Ring. You can overtake pretty much anywhere there. Um, I like that. I like that circuit. I like Suzuka, but I like Red Bull. It's a controversial choice. Red Bull Ring's fun because it's one that you can overtake on, and it it creates mistakes. There's lots of opportunities to to make uh, make errors. But certainly, I think it's fair to say that the Suzuka weakness is the overtaking places because the two you identified there. Yes, the hairpin um, is all right, but it's not a very long run into it, so it it's quite difficult to get 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 a run on people and, and actually the same with the chicane now in that as Formula 1 cars have got faster and harder to follow etc etc we've seen a I, I, mean, I don't know what the numbers are but I, I feel like we've seen quite a big reduction in the number of passing moves we, we see into into the chicane I think because 130R has been I, I won't use the word neutered because that's a rose-tinted spectacle word that naturally comes along with people talking about better back then but it's been made safer or the the, the consequences of having making a mistake there are less drastic and life-threatening so people are generally a little bit more flat through there um, possibly with the current generation of cars they might be able to follow a little bit more closely so um I, they're, they're generally there's there's less of a performance differentiation coming out of, of on 30r and heading towards the chicane just because people are naturally able to be flat out through it i quite like them to have the uh the old corner there because obviously before the chicane there was a fast right hand that brought you onto the start finish straight with basically basically no runoff uh, so very good reason that they they, they decided not to uh to use that after a, a certain point but it's uh yeah, a, a challenging circuit. And, and this this whole point about good race circuit against good driving circuit is a really 
key one actually that I think people often forget. It's one of the reasons Spa works well because you've got a circuit there that does have almost an overtaking sector in the in, in the first sector, as it were, but it also has more twisty in the middle, some challenging corners, half a chance of overtaking at the chicane, I guess, as well at the end of the lap. Uh, Suzuka, I guess, does to an extent not have that, but it does have. I, I think the the snake, as it's called, from turn three up to turn seven, just continuously turning, is a, is a wonderful place to watch. Drivers can make a real difference there because it tests cars, but it tests drivers as well. Remember Jensen Button his first year with Williams in 2000. was absolutely stellar through that. He just had the car well hooked up and he was just driving it beautifully. And it's always interesting to watch. I can remember watching Max Verstappen when he had his first outing, Friday outing uh, in the Toro Rosso in 2014 it would have been, watching him through there and you could see actually he was kind of experimenting with approaches and by the time he got onto his second run in P1 he, he kind of learned from some of those extremes he'd gone to and and kind of narrowing narrowing things down so it's a that section i really really like because it's just a real test of of uh, driver and machine it's a great place to watch when you're there also a fantastic place to race virtually on forza because where, where we're sitting right now in the studio to to our right without wishing to channel the spirit of the absent nicholas parsons introducing just a minute we we have the 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 racing seat and the xbox setup that we periodically get the odd race driver in we've got the little checkered flag with with various people's placings on it and i see harry newey's one minute 30 lap which uh, i recall standing over his shoulder just thinking well you're getting this completely wrong mate as, as he went through that section and lo and behold he was uh, best part of a second slower than uh huan yu zhu through there so uh... it, it is a, it is an interesting circuit to watch at and actually because i always think racetracks you don't really get a proper feel for them until you've until you've really been there and that's not to put down those who can't get because Japan's not very easy to get to for, uh, for no, a lot of people. And that's a uniquely but, tricky place to get to even within Japan, isn't uh, it? Well, exactly, yeah. It's, it's a real trek. But it, it's the kind of geography of the place. It's always going up or down. It's quite compact, actually. You sort of The first time you go there, you find yourself going to one bit of the circuit and you just sort of look just, just over there. It's like, oh, there's, there's a much earlier part of the uh, of the track you can uh, you can see there. So it's it's not... And that, in the, the snake, you can kind of stand sort of above the circuit and look down on it and you can see the exit of turn two coming up through that sequence of left right left which is always really uh really fascinating to watch how people people get on there but again that is a section and in fact that whole first part through the two degnas that follow so basically turn three up to out of degna two fantastic bit of of track from a driving perspective not a fantastic piece of racetrack yeah degna very very tricky particularly degna one which is one of those corners where people make mistakes and it can set up overtaking opportunities further on down the road as we get towards the spoon and, and the hairpin but very often mistakes there can actually be race ending or they used to be because you would end up smacking into the wall because as you say I've seen a few chassis done there at that yeah, one particularly yeah it's, it's it's such a hilly circuit as you say that there is no way of increasing the runoff space there well i suppose there is but you'd have to put quite a lot of earthwork uh, into it and so you can you can really break a chassis there because there's a small dip isn't there as you as you come into that section so you you have to be committed and yet absolutely precise on your turning it's not a corner for adjustments particularly there's a no, no, tiny no. bit of margin but not much once once you're committed it basically fires you straight out because most people they they're grind they're, they're bottoming out as they're at the apex there so you kind of just trust the car to get you through 
but we do see um, JBL. I guess this is this is an example of a circuit that's that's maybe been improved a little bit by DRS, and that you do sometimes see passes down into turn two. And in fact, even before DRS, we did see some of those. I always remember actually an interesting case it would have been twenty twelve, which was. One of the first races that I was really impressed with Daniel Ricciardo actually in Toro Rosso and that Michael Schumacher was coming through on fresh tyres at the end and he kept doing that thing of kind of forcing people to defend into turn one, which is the fast kink. And of course, the way they did it inevitably carried them wide for turn two, leaving the door wide open. Uh, whereas Ricciardo, when he got to him, Ricciardo, he'd cover it, but he wouldn't overcommit. So he, you could just see he was... He was thinking that was kind of the first time it really hit me how good this guy's racecraft could be. But that, I guess that does that that section does show how DRS can can improve a circuit. Yeah, absolutely. And then your thing is you have to get the traction out of that final chicane first before you can have really any effect with the DRS. Um, but then once you get to turn two, it is very very difficult to if you've not made the pass with DRS earlier on, then you are kind of resigned to following unless you manage to get the traction out of Degna 2 and make a move into the hairpin. Um, what you need from the sort of the snake S section is just lovely, lovely rear end stability. You need good turn in from the front end as well. Um, I saw an onboard clip of former Arrows driver Taurus Kagi from 1999 driving through it. Very that, possibly his first mention on this podcast, which is disappointing. We waited this uh, long. Really? Um, but he looked like he was to use a, a Martin Brundleism wrestling an octopus, that car looked evil to handle. Uh, he was correcting every single corner. You lose so much time in those corners if you're having to make the slightest bit of corrections. Uh, it's compound, don't they? Because they come thick and fast. Yeah, and if you're compromised for one, then you're compromised for the next one and compromised for the next one. You have to think quickly to try and get back on track and get the rhythm back. But if you've got a car that has got that front end and you're just able to make a nice little turn and then get it around for the next corner then that's where your lap time comes um so it does there is a bit of a differentiator between all of the different cars uh that does depend on how good your front end is really if memory serves around that about that sort of time eggball hamady was the head of arrow arrows and he was kind of infamous for not really bothering with downforce he was just completely uh obsessed with top straight line speed so if you got in an egg bell hammerty car it would be uh, a rocket ship in a straight line but you'd, you'd have no downforce at all, at all by the time you got to the corner so you were kind of in in the hands of your own reflexes and the tires but given the arrows at the time which had terrible engines it didn't have that either yeah, you probably just needed that to get by, didn't you? Yeah, Suzuka's definitely a track to uh, expose that kind of thing. I, th- I think the thing I like about Suzuka is it is a place where you see the drivers making a difference. Um, people talk about whether it's car or driver, and of course, I always say that the car defines the overall potential lap time, and it's the driver's job to exploit that. So they're almost two different scales you're looking at there. It's not kind of a 70% car, 30% driver. People do calculate sometimes figures for this, but... You do see drivers excelling there, and we've seen, we mentioned Button in 2000, Robert Kubica in 2010 in the Renault, which is often forgotten because his wheel worked its way off very, very early on. But he qualified, I think, third and was running second. He, I was speaking to him about that earlier this year, and he saw that as a really mega performance for uh, for, for him. So it is somewhere where you can, you know, you're not going to take a back-of-the-grid car to the front. <laughs> so no matter, no matter how, how well you drive a Williams, you're still going to be pretty much near the back this uh, this weekend but it is a place where there's a little bit more margin where you can actually make a difference and you see how 
what makes the difference with the very best drivers. You also don't really see, to to the same extent as on other circuits, um, sectors where a particular car is necessarily hand over fist better than another. So the the driver starts making a difference very from absolutely the first corner um, and it feels like once you've let once you've made a mistake and left time on the table you can't get that back later in the lap yeah that's what that's what you want from a driver challenge don't you You want them to, to have to nail it in uh in qualifying I mean, it is an interesting question this debate of what makes it the best track because it, it it's demonstrably not the best track for racing on the calendar it, it's not really even that in that conversation but as a driver's track, it, it very much is. So it's it's usually this bar is another one. People don't normally cite the Red Bull ring, interestingly enough, because it's a. I, mean, I think that's a really interesting actually suggestion that you brought up there, because it's it's a great. It's just a it's a really good track for modern F1. It produces good racing. It produces errors. It's a challenge. Some brisk corners as well. So that that's it's weird because it's not in itself a classical massive driver challenge but yeah, it was one but that it actually much is. derided wasn't yeah, it yeah. you know when when well the people went back, to the old the mighty long Osterreich ring yeah people go on and on about the mighty Osterreich ring and and say about what a complete pony show the current one is what they forget is that the the previous track was dangerous wasn't necessarily brilliant for overtaking and was on several different people's land so when they tried to kind of repurpose it and uh, make it into a modern racetrack they were literally fighting over meters as as alex vert said because the the various land landowners nearby were too greedy so it's ended up as it is simply because of the greed of of, of the local landlords but by chance, a good, a good circuit mm. because of it. What are the tracks we put into that? And I mentioned Spa. That's the the standard one to to throw. And I do like Spa. Um, I do think it's one of those ones. Suzuka. I, I like the fact that Suzuka does have a lot of places that don't have much margin for error. There's a few in Spa where now there is a bit more of that margin. So maybe that changes Spa a bit. Although again, to get a lap time out of the car. Still got to be good. What, what else? Are we Silverstone still decent. Bahrain as well has kind of oh, grown Bahrain's into itself. One, yeah. You know, do you remember a few? Well, ten years ago now, uh, I think. Just looking back, yeah, um, there was people were so worried. Particularly the owners of the Bahrain circuit were so worried about the spectacle that they hosted a Grand Prix on a different layout there, hoping that it would be better, and I, it wasn't. I think as much as anything, that's because McLaren was quite good previously on those sorts of tracks, and then it was a bit rubbish that year. Because yeah. <laughs> on, on, it's, it's quite yeah. twiddly. Go back to plan A. It's sort of a twiddly section up what I call the top of the circuit. So you kind of, once you've done that little sack, that first little section, you're getting up towards turn, I can't even remember the turn numbers, the right hander where there's mm. a lot of overtaking up there. There's a, rather than taking that fast route back that brings you to that back straight, there's a lot of little slow corners and bits and pieces you can faff about in. It was where, wasn't it where Karun Chanok dropped his HRT? Uh, yes, in yeah. 2010, we probably shouldn't mention that. Well, Karun's not here, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're allowed to mention that. In fairness, I think he did. I think he first got to drive that car in qualifying. <laughs> yeah, I think the paint was still wet, wasn't it, when he got in that car? So it's not entirely his fault. Yeah, we'll excuse him with that one. Not not much else, but we'll we'll, we'll let him off uh, off off on that one. Any others we're going to throw in? So we talked about Silverstone, Spa, Suzuka, Bahrain again, an interesting one. It is funny how good tracks change a little bit because corners that were once slower like the hungaroring is a much better circuit now than it was 20 years ago for people example. people would refuse to go to the hungaro ring do you remember when um, martin brundle would not show up on commentary because he couldn't be bothered to go 
because uh, uh, it was the, the whole thing was well, it's the Hungaroring. People call it the Hungar boring, didn't they? And said nothing ever happened there. Over the past ten years, it's become one of the fruitiest places for racing in that sort of mid-season pack. Things evolved, don't they? And a bit like Monza's a good circuit, but it's not a great circuit for racing. No, now. And, and, and even then, there's, yeah. there's not actually that many. It hasn't actually got that many corners now. It used to be famous for its slipstreaming. Now it's just sort of famous for just hanging around with one long drone. Talking about one long drone, any others you'd like to throw in, JBL? Uh, I was going to say, in the same vein as uh, the Red Bull Ring, I was going to say Hockenheim, even though oh, yeah. it is much derided for you know being a much shorter version nowadays, considering how it was when it was a big blast through the forest uh, until... But of course it was crap then, wasn't it? But people, it was... people say, oh, make it back how it was. The new Hockenheim is slated for not being the old Hockenheim, and the old Hockenheim is slated for not being the Nürburgring. And the old Hockenheim, if you had a good engine, you were fine. You could, unless if it broke down, okay, fine. But if you had a powerful, reliable engine, you would win that's not a challenge that's just oh i've got a really good engine or oh, i'm gonna win the race now hence gearhard burger in 1997 um but now there's a genuine challenge to it and people go oh but it's not flat out around the forest and it's like well that's that's not very interesting is it no i actually cobblers to being flat out around the forest i actually much prefer it how it is now with all those sections returned to nature to play well not even to play devil's advocate on that i think the thing that was nice about hockenheim is it was different the old hockenheim it, it was a distinctive, unique, sort of recognisable challenge that wasn't really there elsewhere. I take your point, JBL, about the, the overall challenge of it, but variety is important with circuits, isn't it? I think that's that's a big thing, which is why something like Monaco is a, a great thing to have on the, the calendar because it's just variety. You know, if every circuit was Monaco, that would be a disaster for racing. But as a one a year thing, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, if every circuit was like Paul Ricard, it would be a disaster for racing as well. Yeah. That's variety. <laughs> that's variety, just not in a good way. Yeah, nobody nobody arguing Paul Ricard. To be fair to them, the event they, was much they've better. They've tried this year. their best. Yeah, it was less bad this year. It's it's, it's certainly improving, but uh, but by and large, yeah. The I, th- I think we do have to be willing to kind of slightly recast how we see a great circuit uh, now because of these uh, these sort of changes. But I think it's funny Suzuka kind of through all that has almost stayed there, hasn't it? It's it's just remained a great challenge because of this very just unique character and the undulations and the hills and you know you go into the circuit and there's these sort of feel like these towering grandstands don't they because they're on they're on higher lands and just the, the whole place you you, you go on because normally we stay nearby and get a shuttle bus in and you'll go in and there'll be just swarms of fans there with often with cardboard cutouts of drivers and that kind of thing just absolutely really really loving it and it's not it's not quite the days where they have to go into a lottery to to win tickets or that kind of thing as it was kind of 25 years ago or so but it's still a really popular event yeah when you think how deep in the boondocks it is that all those people make such an effort to get there and and they stay there through thick and thin i remember the uh was it was it 2004 the year of the the typhoon that didn't quite hit and leave the typhoon lurking around this week yeah yeah there is one and and it might just go the same way or it might it might actually hit but they i remember coming out of the paddock one night it might have been the thursday night so it was media day but we kind of knew that the track, track activity was going to be cancelled Friday, Saturday. And there were these sort of, there's this gaggle of 
bedraggled-looking fans hanging around outside the paddock gates, hoping to catch a glimpse of their stars. And, and bless them, a couple of them thought I was Jean-Maria Bruni and asked for my autograph. So I kind of, I, I must confess, I signed it for them because I kind of thought, I don't want your vigil to be in vain. Not the only Formula One driver you've been mistaken for at Grand Prix. Well, of course not. But, you know, what can I say? I'm a chameleon. Who is the second one? <laughs> Astonishingly, Valtteri Bottas. Yes, uh, <laughs> I think drunk, a couple of yeah, years ago. drunk Australian fans um, while I was out running the circuit thought I was Valtteri Bottas. They were going, "Hey, Valerie, Valerie, over here, Valerie." <laughs> they thought my name was Valerie. You, you've rolled out both of your Antipodean accents in this podcast. That's oh yes. That's uh, a bit if of we were Valerie, did they call on you? <laughs> oh dear, dear. They, they were asking me to come on over. Uh, moving uh, swiftly on. So, uh, in conclusion. I, I quite like saying Suzuka's the best circuit, actually. Just from a, I just like it from a pure driving perspective. I, I think you've, I think best circuit to me normally does lean towards driver challenge. Best racing circuit, different answer. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with that, and also how much it resonates with the fans because I, I, I think those two are part and parcel. When when you go to a, it's an event, isn't it? Yeah, when when you go to then an event, again, you want so to feel the Red part Bull of it. Yes. Mega fans there. There are mega fans there. Lots of beer and sausage consumed, quite raucous. Yeah, I'd I'd go that far. I've 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 changed my opinion actually. When when JBL first nominated the Red Bull Ring, I kind of thought it maybe been eating magic mushrooms for lunch. But no, yeah, you you might just be right. I'm always right. Have you stuck? You're sticking with that opinion. Uh, I don't know about the best, but it's one I enjoy the most. I think. Yeah, fair. Let's quickly look at the prospects at the front this weekend. Now, JBL, Ferrari's won three out of the last four. It should have won four out of the last four without the uh, the K failure for, for Vettel and the resulting uh, VSC that allowed Mercedes to take a 1-2, thanks to Leclerc, of course, taking that extra pit stop to try and come back at them. Does that mean Ferrari's favourite for Suzuka? I think on the evidence of Sector 1, I think definitely, because we saw how well the car handled over the, the bumps in Singapore it carried that forward to Sochi as well and it looks like it's really nicely well balanced now and it looks like it should be able to do a good job that, but that, uh, the, the stake's going to be a real test of the front end isn't it the front end <laughs> downforce and whether it's got that bite and definitely and which be, has improved but how, by how much great barometer know. Um, it will be a fantastic barometer um, but when it comes to I don't know the corners that require a little bit more traction um you would have to think, you know, Mercedes have had that on lockdown all season. So you can you can never discount them, really. Um, I think I was checking this out, and I think the last time Ferrari won at Suzuka was 2004. So that is 15 years. Uh, Ferrari has to... <laughs> 15 years of bad luck they have to shake off. So I think favourites this weekend might be stretching it a little bit, but, you know, you, they, they, will be, they will factor very heavily. It's interesting as well with the uh, Mercedes are struggling to get the best out of the car in qualifying. Ever since that Germany update, which didn't quite deliver everything they hoped, it's been a bit trickier, a bit more capricious in, in qualifying to get the tyre temps right. So, again, they could be in this, this problem where they don't have track position, but they could potentially have the quicker car in the race. Isn't that quite bizarre that you can put on an update that improves uh, your your capabilities in some respects but actively hinders you in quite a crucial phase of the race weekend oh definitely uh what i find really interesting about that as well is the start of the season when teams were not very happy about the tires that pirelli had had brought 
and Mercedes like, now nah, we're fine with them, obviously, because they were doing so well with them. And now they're doing slightly less well. You wonder if their opinion has changed on the matter somewhat. Yeah, everyone changes their mind about the tyres when they start to have uh, a little bit of difficulty switching them on or, or keeping them going, don't they? <laughs> uh, but it, it is interesting because we saw in Singapore they were having to be quite quick on their outlaps uh, before push laps and actually fluctuating quite a bit in terms of the outlap pace. They were, were trying to kind of get the, the magic, uh, magic formula there. Uh, and, of, and of course, actually, Mercedes could clinch, well, probably will uh, clinch the constructors. They're 162 ahead at the moment. There'll be 176 points left on the table after this week. I'm not going to go through all the permutations that could see them in it, but there's a reasonable chance they'll uh, they'll clinch. It's not not certain. And of course, it can also guarantee the driver's title at Suzuka, but not for either driver, if you see what I mean, because obviously it, it could be just down to Hamilton or Bottas uh, after this weekend because Hamilton's 107 clear of Leclerc and there's only uh, 104 points left obviously Bottas sits in between them that, it was quite interesting last week I uh, went to Brooklands on a Monster Energy sponsor day where they were they had both drivers on on different days entertaining VIPs competition winners etc and we had a little bit of time to interview them both and, and Valtteri off mic before the uh uh, interview got going I said to him uh, this is going to be appearing in F1 Racing magazine probably after the end of the season so if you have that in your head while we're talking I'm not asking you about the here and now as you would be if you were talking to someone on a, a digital outlet or something and he said well you know I, I, I could be champion by then if I'm lucky another outstanding impression you wouldn't be mistaken for Valtteri Bottas if it was just your voice would you no. Valtteri keeps saying the right things. And actually, he's got such a tough job, Bottas, being compared to Hamilton, because you always know Hamilton's going to get close to the maximum out of the car. And if you kind of look at a lot of individual races for, for Bottas, you think, yeah, that's fine, decent, decent. But I've been kind of analysing some of the numbers and everything over the year. And, and you sort of, if you look at any snapshot of Bottas's season, there's nothing absolutely jaw-dropping. But then you look at it as a body of work. And you think, actually good step forward from last year improved the weaknesses he's done well but obviously still he's not in a position to ultimately beat Hamilton to the world championship is it because somehow Lewis always seems to be able to pull something extra out from somewhere whereas Valtteri's kind of more of a straight line he has maybe fewer peaks there's, and, there's a bit of that and you you tend to sometimes see when he's had a kind of one one of those middling races where he's finished an anonymous second or third or a seemingly anonymous second or third and he'll say well, I had difficulty keeping keeping the rears alive I had difficulty keeping the fronts alive I had a bit of difficulty with locking brakes and it seems like there's been one little thing that's kind of held him back that his teammate hasn't reported yeah I think I think Lewis Hamilton generally is a little bit better when it comes to improvising and driving around little limitations and that kind of thing it's it's very tiny differences like we've seen it this year Lewis is a little bit better at tyre management he's a little bit better in turbulent air we saw that at Monza and these are all things that Bottas has, has worked on and also Hamilton gets stronger as the season goes on as he dials the car in more to him the team inevitably galvanises around around Hamilton so it all makes it very very difficult for the de facto number number two driver I think for, for Bottas and I think if you, you look at it for him still to be there in the hunt now all credit to him. He may not have won any races since the fourth race in Azerbaijan, so he won two of the first four, none since. But you know, he's still he's still doing a doing a good job. It's quite weird, isn't it, that we're having this conversation now? If we'd been talking immediately after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, who would have thought that he would be having the Valtteri it's James message earlier than he did last year? 
Yeah, it's uh, it happens, doesn't it? I mean, that that was obviously you're referring to Singapore there, aren't you? The, yeah, uh, and that was a yeah, not a, a unique kind of situation designed to undo a mistake basically that Singapore uh, Singapore that Mercedes had made by leaving Hamilton out for uh, for too long, and they didn't want to get jumped by Albon as well, who uh, was held back. But yeah, it's. It, it's it's funny. I mean, Valtteri Bottas' only crime this season, if you want to be critical, is he's not quite as good as Lewis Hamilton. But he's kind of you know chipping away, gets a little bit better, get a little bit better next year as well. And I think it, uh, he's never going to be Lewis Hamilton, but who is? No, even even Lewis Hamilton is kind of evolving beyond the Lewis Hamilton he was a year ago. He's he's a constantly changing fixture of Formula One. Yep, still seems to be kind of on the uh, on the up as well. But we should briefly mention Red Bull. What do you make of their prospects, JBL? And we should say Red Bull in the hybrid era, Zuka's not actually been that happy a hunting ground, has it? No, um, certainly not. But this year is a very different prospect because it's got it's got the home engine, it's got the Honda engine. Um, you expect Honda to do something a little bit special with regards to putting on a bit of a show for for the the Japanese audience at Suzuka they've got a lot of they'll have a lot of corporate guests they want to impress um so they might be allowed a little bit extra in terms of engine modes we don't know um and it would be a good test to see as well how much Red Bull have moved on with regards to the chassis department uh whether the the traction from the Honda engine is a little bit better than what they had with Renault um you would usually think on the basis of how good they were pre-hybrid era that Suzuka would be a circuit that suits them. They just haven't had the tools to be able to do it. And so I think this weekend is probably the best chance they've had since about 2013 of perhaps coming in snatching a victory. I don't know. Um, Trouble is, how do they get track position there? That's that's the problem. That's it. Um, qualifying has been, qualifying performance has been neglected a little bit, I would say. Um Although we did have, it's a very different circuit to Hungary, but we did have the Verstappen claimers first pole there. And if they can find some of that magic, it's not impossible. I think some of that magic was Mercedes underperforming and struggling a bit with the tyres as well, though, wasn't it? That's a difficult, difficult thing. And we, interestingly, we have seen since the break the step Red Bull have made Friday to Q, to, to the fastest time in qualifying, so from FP2 through to the end of qualifying, has been kind of significantly less than it was in the four races before in terms of the percentage uh, we've seen sort of Ferrari and Mercedes making some similar gains they weren't too bad at Spa but the, the three after that so again that points to the the kind of the engine modes and when that, that extra oomph kicks in Honda have got a qualifying mode but it's not quite as special as the uh, the Mercedes and Ferrari ones yeah the Mercedes and Ferrari or Mercedes were the ones who coined the term party mode, weren't they? Whereas I think Honda's is still kind of uh, a, a bottle of Lambrusco and a packet of Pringles in terms of parties compared with Mercedes Magnum of Champagne. <laughs> very, very well uh, well put. So uh, just looking a little bit lower down the field, Codders, you know, we talked a lot in the last episode about McLaren's revival and talked a bit about Renault. Racing Point is an interesting case. Uh, they seem to be coming back a little bit more onto the radar. Perez, very quick at Sochi, uh, got a good result there and was fast in the racing, but in particular. So with the upgrade they introduced at Singapore, do we feel racing points back on track? I think they're getting back on track. Their problem was last year, as, as, as they're, they're ready to admit, is that from mid-season onwards last year, they were struggling for survival and that car was started late. They didn't have the resource to to plough into 
2019 car development, they were too busy trying to stop their staff defecting to other teams because the, they weren't paying their bills. So, basically the same rear end as last year. Yeah, it, it's, it completely stifled development. So the, the question this year was how how much they would be able to evolve that car given the the state of its genesis that it was it was carrying compromise and how much they'd be able to squeeze out of it and we've seen them actually add performance to the car and bring some quite interesting technical developments like that whole change of front end concept surprised me i I, i'd have thought that you wouldn't just add a whole new front end you you would make it more homogenous but they appear to have found a step in performance through that front end change yeah it's it's been quite weird because We've seen them since 2014 when they released the uh, the B edition of that year's car. Not 2014, 2015, sorry. Um, they'd gone with that nostril concept and it seemed it was their hallmark. And now you see a pink car on the grid and it doesn't have them. And it's a bit it's a bit strange because, you know, it's like a pig, pig before. Uh, now, what do you call it? Pig Panther. It's not so quick. Uh, well, they, they did. <laughs> the, the whole... That whole nose change was related to the uh, the kind of the change in the front end concept and making it work better with the wheel, the steering lock on that kind of thing, the whole kind of control of center of error of pressure and that kind of thing at turning. So they had a bit of stability issues at turning, that kind of thing. That in fact, the drivers immediately their feedback was positive about the stability uh, gaining control of that. So it's it's That's interesting. Been something made a lot of, a lot of teams have struggled with, hasn't it, Ed? Actually, uh, McLaren noticeably had problems with with that and and weight management. So they they're, they're not unique in in struggling with that. I think when you bring a change of front end concept like that, because it's so almost conventional in a way because um, you look at Ferrari and they've gone in the other direction but Racing Point has gone something more conventional and you can see that they're just going okay this isn't working on this particular car this is a, a step towards a new change in concept that you know we'll see something different next year no doubt um, now that they've got more finance um, they're able to produce something a little bit different so this is like a step in that direction um so this year's car is a sort of a bit of a hybrid in that way and that it has many elements from last year's car but it's being used as a test bed to kind of carry forward these new developments it does seem like a deliberate attempt to just try and iron out all of the instabilities at the front end so you can get okay right look let's give our drivers a nice platform to work with let sergio hoover up the points when he can um and go at it again for 2020, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a year zero, this, for Racing Point, because of the problems Codders uh, explained there. So it's good, to, it's good to see them being back in the contention for regular points. They had quite a long spell where they were really struggling, with the exception of that Lance Stroll fourth place in Germany, which obviously uh, weather and timely switch to slicks assisted. It's been very, very difficult, even though I think Perez in particular has been, has been driving uh, pr- pretty well over, overall. So again, Suzuka will be a good test of that that change they've made because obviously Sochi, it's not the most all-round circuit, should we say. It's not the most uh, downforce, aero load sensitive uh, of tracks. So Suzuka will be a big test for them. Now, uh, JBL, there will be a new face in action at Suzuka in FP1. Naoki Yamamoto joining for Toro Rosso. So what can you tell us about him? He's, he's Honda affiliated and 31 years old. We can we can start off with that. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, the last time we pulled uh, a debutante from Super Formula, who was Honda affiliated with Yuji Ide uh, <laughs> back in 2006. A, a better driver than he's remembered because although he struggled in those races in Super Gary, very much in the second car of a hastily convened team, you know, he's a Super Formula 
uh, formerly an Nippon as was race winner, but a proper driver. Yeah, he uh, he he wasn't the the tugger he was made out to be. Well, he was in Formula One, but the, as Ed says, there are mitigating circumstances for that. He he wasn't awful in Super Formula, and they wouldn't put put him forward for F one if they didn't think he could do it. But on the subject, back on Naoki Yamamoto for a minute. Uh, sorry to bring that sorry. tangent to you, um, but he's he's a name that's sort of come out in the last couple of years as touted as if Honda has a bit more say about who gets to drive at Toro Rosso uh, he seems like their best bet obviously they've got uh, Tadasuke Makino uh, Norefu Kazumi they've both been shipped off to Super Formula but they sort of haven't had the same impact that they've had in Europe because you know it's it's a little bit of a different kettle of fish racing in Japan maybe um, so he seems like the best bet at the moment uh, he two-time Super Formula champion and currently leading 2019 season won Super GT with Jensen Button last year Jensen um, Button speaks very highly of him doesn't he yeah and so he's currently leading Super Formula by according to my notebook one point over former Formula 3 racer Nick Cassidy uh, former Formula 3 Formula 2 single-seater journeyman Alex Palou is four points behind so perhaps it's not the greatest bench of talent ever but Yamamoto has been the stand-up racer in the last few years he's uh, a kind of classic old school japanese domestic legend isn't he because he's basically done nothing in, he's not he's not one of those ones who came to europe and had a go in f3 or f2 or whatever and then went back he, he's just been over there and and just become a real real star of that racing scene yeah absolutely and i think what he's gonna have to get on top of very quickly when he jumps into that Rosso in place of pierre gasly in fp1 is the change in tires super formula uses uh, Yokohamas, they are very, very hard tyres. They are tyres that drivers like to say you can shag. Uh, they can be pushed very, very hard. Pirelli tyres, you have to be very, very delicate. Um, so while in FP1, it's not so much for consideration. He's still going to have to conduct some kind of running for the team. They're still going to have. He's still going to have obligations. He's still going to have to run to certain programs so he's going to have to really keep his eye on those it's going to be watching one thing watching another it's like I don't know cooking two things at once you've got to keep an eye on the uh, oh master baker JBL <laughs> brings a bake-off reference <laughs> but obviously baking it's a little bit slower than you know cooking something on the hob and, and making making some icing delicate icing while baking something and having to keep an eye on what's in the oven without opening the oven door I told yeah. you your catering experience would come in handy. <laughs> Seven years. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of things that aren't necessarily going to translate particularly well from Super Formula to F1. That's going to be, I think, the biggest challenge. Uh, if we're looking at pure stats, uh, I've written down that the poll time for Super Formula earlier this year was 1 minute 36, and last year Formula 1 was a 1 minute 27, so the cars are about 9 seconds quicker as well. Yeah, and obviously he'll be, you know, all the tricks of Suzuka because he's uh, something of a specialist. Uh, and obviously, a race there, I've done a huge amount of testing there as well. So, good place for him to, to have a go. He's an interesting driver, really, because he's unlikely to get an F1 race seat, but he's just thereabouts, and there's just half a chance he might get a go through Honda. And I guess this will be quite important. In, he, he needs to go in and do a really good job. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean he has to be super fast, to, but to actually at least say, oh, look, this guy actually could do a decent uh, a decent job if given the chance he might spring a surprise particularly if it's wet remember when uh, 
Damon Hill had that fantastic Grand Prix at Suzuka in in the wet because he'd he'd raced there in uh, you know, Japanese Formula Three Thousand and, and knew Suzuka really well. Adrian Sutil, remember in his Friday outing mm. in the in the like, it was Spiker at the time, Spiker wasn't it? At the time, I think yeah. he was it was he third fastest in one of the one of the sessions. Everyone was like, "Oh, who's this guy?" Yeah, if 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 but you've of course Japanese F three, he was yeah. racing in. Once once you've um, been around there a few times in the wet. You've got that experience banked. Um, uh, you you actually Eddie Irvine's another one. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie Irvine uh, unlapped himself from uh, Etten Senna, causing no end of grief. So punchy performance. Punchy performance. So if 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 you are a Suzuka specialist, if you have that much more experience there, then then you can shine when the weather gets iffy. Yeah, interesting to see how he uh, how he goes, and it's always it's always good to have drivers getting a chance. There's very few opportunities for people, and if nothing else, it's a nice reward for a hugely successful uh, domestic career, much as it was when Satoshi Motoyama had a go in the Jordan uh, some years ago on a, on a Friday. That was also uh, good to see. So yeah, let's, uh, let's hope it goes well for him. Now we also have had some news recently, Codders, about uh, another prospective new F1 team wants to join the grid in 2021. So they say uh, they've got links to Campos Racing F F2 team. So what do we know about them and how seriously to take this? Pascal Verline and, and the aforementioned Alex Palau were, were cited as uh, possible contenders for a drive, even in their initial press release. Yeah, this was quite an eccentric means of uh, announcing or throwing your hat in the ring for a Formula One entry, isn't it? Uh, in that Formula One themselves say there's been no serious discussions. The FIA president, Jean Todd, also poured a little bit of cold water on that in Singapore, saying that there aren't really any credible names out there. And, and you ha- have this Monaco-based uh, company called Monaco Increase Management, who seem to have, if if you look at their sort of their their web front, as it were, their shop front, suggests a lot of involvement in motor racing. They claim to manage Pascal Verline and Alex Palou, so no surprise that they've been floated as names for this putative entry. There's talk of it being actioned with Adrian Campos and Campos Racing, which lends it a certain but not huge degree of credibility because they were also given an entry in 2010 and that kind of barely came about. It finally limped onto the grid late and under a different name. Salvatore Gandolfo is the man behind Monaco Increase Management. So there's some money. They say they've got Daniele Ordetto, who's a great name from Formula One past. Super Agri, he was last seen, but he was also... Uh, associated with Ferrari in the good old days, we might say in the 1970s. He was part of that uh, whole Nicky Lauda championship bid in the mid-70s. So it comes with a fair bit of pedigree. There's talk that Peter McCool, who was involved in Super Agri as a designer, and, and Ben Wood, who last worked with Mercedes and F1 as an aerodynamicist, been involved. Thing is, why why would you actually want to go to the expense and arsake of setting up a Formula One team if you've got money when you could buy into an existing one? Is is my argument? If, if you can buy into an existing one, yeah, because there are know. quite a few people around who are quite keen on acquiring Formula One teams when they uh, when they crop up, aren't they? As we've as we've yeah, seen, so yeah. it's it's interesting because there's not actually that many F1 teams that are for sale. It seems like a roundabout way, and that there seems to be an awful lot of F1 teams who who would sell to the right buyer, shall we say, uh, or at least offer some sort of input. I suppose the trouble is you have teams like Williams who want to remain independent but would quite happily accept an investor. And a team like Toro Rosso has sort of tacitly, officially, it's not for sale, but unofficially it is possible you could do something with it. But 
to the credit of Red Bull, they've always stated in any dealings they've had that it has to stay in Faenza in Italy. It can't just be kind of acquired like a franchise and taken off yeah. to Yeah, bought, who knows ripped where. out, moved to wherever. So that's tricky. At the same time, it is expensive to start a Formula One team. You aren't guaranteed a share of the taking straight away. So whatever whatever they actually do will be contingent on the commercial settlement that has yet to be agreed. Well, there's been talk about for the future for having kind of a... Remember, there used to be the bond that they had to pay to to come in and then they'd be paid that money back. There's talk about basically there being a buy-in now and that this would be shared and potentially shared among the existing teams for letting someone else in, which is not an unreasonable thing to do if they're going to reward all the teams. But it's it's very, very different because... Obviously, people can look at that F1 statement and say, oh, they're just shutting the door to people. But they're right to, to set very, very high standards for, uh, event, for entry. Yeah, we we, don't, say, we don't want crap teams because we've had no, enough no. of crap teams. You speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are fun. But obviously, you want you know, a Formula One team. You cannot lash it up with a few people and a basic facility. It's a, Even if you're going to do the Haas model, where you have a technical partnership and you take non-listed parts as much as you can and even go and partner up with a, with a Delara or someone like that, it still requires a lot of people and infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they're talking about 2021, and in fact, so is the, the other team, the... Panthera. Uh, Panthera. I was wondering about the pronunciation for that. Oh, yeah, Panthera I'm calling team Panthera Asia. rather than Pantera, who were a terrible <laughs> rock band from the 1990s. Yeah, Panthera seems sensible. Again with some sensible names attached seem serious talking about 2021 but that's still very very close and i think any team trying to put something together for that point would have to go down the Haas model a few years beyond maybe you can start thinking about something something different but it's uh it's difficult because formula one should if there's a viable new team or teams out there f1 should get them in you don't want the, the days where you had 39 cars as we had in say 89 are you don't really want that because that dilutes it uh, too much. Fun as it fun as it is, but while they want to protect the existing teams, they don't want to kind of jeopardise Formula One by completely cutting people out. Yeah, and the, the existing teams don't necessarily want another set of hands in the pot, which is well, of another point. Yeah. yeah, but they should be willing to because sometimes you do need teams to come in. I mean, interesting. Obviously, a team like Haas, we don't know what's going to happen with that. Uh, they there are there are signs that. Uh, Gene Hass's commitment is wavering a little bit, basically because of how difficult it is to make it work. Hass have come in, and by any standards, they've done well. Yes, they've been having a nightmare season this year, but they're still scoring points every now and again. And they've done, by standards of recent new teams, very, very well. But the fact that's looking a little bit shaky, so you never know, could they buy into that and take that over? Or there's always the possibility that could vanish entirely. So suddenly Formula 1's end down to 90. And it doesn't take much for the odd team to shut down. Teams do do shut down sometimes. It's quite rare now. But we have lost teams like Super Aguri, like the Toyota Works team, etc. In, in the past. So Formula 1 needs to be willing to kind of refresh the, the waters every now and again. You need teams that are commercially strong and aren't reliant on one source of income. So you look at the teams that have failed in recent years and they're all teams that were contingent on the involvement of one entity so you had toyota who although they had commercial sponsorship from panasonic and that sort of thing it was basically a toyota works team super Aggery was a sort of a uh let's face it it was thrown together to salve a little bit of the bad pr they had from getting rid of takuma sato from the bar honda works team so 
Super Angry was always on a thin budget. And if, if you look at the reasons they cited for pulling out, it was that a sponsor didn't pay. That sponsor never appeared to have existed. Was it the SS Oil and Gas Company? So what you cannot have are companies getting into Formula One that are reliant on either fictitious streams of income or, or just one, because all that is just one straw that can be pulled out from underneath it and and you're gone you need to have a good strong financial base either with a manufacturer that's committed in the long term or a number of partners who are willing to shoulder the burden yeah very much so and if you can convince the fi of that and they're fun of that then it is possible to get it i think what's fairly clear from what they've said is that they really don't want new teams in 21 21 seems to be a bit of a no-go i think there's so much complexity going on in the negotiations and the new commercial deals etc that the last thing they need is new teams muddying the water at that stage so i imagine if they are serious if they if formula one does see these are serious these two teams are serious options they'll kind of kick it down the road a bit and say well let's look at 2022 2023 maybe when things are a bit more settled but it's phenomenally difficult to start up an f1 team just is you know you think of all the things you need and the you know it's not just the employees and the location it's all it's the technology and the the ip i mean yes there's talk about these actually quite a pragmatic idea the open source rules they've suggested for formula one whereby everybody has to lodge their designs for particularly non-performance differential parts so that rather than having off-the-shelf stock set parts which will be heavy by their very nature you can still have well-designed light parts that you don't have to design you can just just manufacture them good a good uh good way of doing it but even with that there's still a hell of a chat i mean it's massive isn't it jbl to actually make a formula one car now i mean 30 years ago it was actually possible for a very very small team of people to to do a formula one car but now you know the smallest team that could do it is is still absolutely enormous isn't it yeah 30 years ago you could probably do it out of a a, a locker well, maybe maybe not 30 years ago maybe that was 40 years ago but today you need to have God, probably about at least a uh, hundred million dollars worth of infrastructure before you even think about tackling that at all. Yeah, just the kit and the yeah, machine and tools and that kind of thing, just to, yeah. just to make the stuff. Yeah, you need at least I don't know, I don't know how many CNC machines you would need in the factory, but they're not cheap. And the big teams have a lot. If you go in somewhere like Mercedes at Brackley, the amount of machinery on that on the, the workshop floor is unbelievable. And a lot of that was paid for by Honda, wasn't it? Yeah, very very much so. Yeah, you generally. have companies like Haas coming in they can only afford it because well they make cnc machines so um it's so difficult to do it now and i think anyone who wants to come into formula one and start a team from scratch has to be i think supported properly um do do you look at the campos and the panthera entries and think yeah they'll, they'll make it no um it does seem a little bit it just seems like bluster to try and get people involved. Well, obviously, there, obviously, there's a desire to raise money and that kind of thing, and and interest. So it's difficult, isn't it? It's like anything you can you can have a sound potential business with a few good core people who you think, yeah, actually, you could do this. And some of these names that are attached are credible, but unless they can get the money in, then it becomes impossible to to do. And there's plenty of people who could be very capable of doing that if they had the resource, but they don't have the resource. That's that's the that's the wall you have to clear to get into the promised land but uh, it's good that there are people looking at it but i think it's also wise that the barrier to entry is sensible 
because otherwise you'll just get chances trying to get a bit of a slice of the pie. Yeah. Well, and if you just want that, that's that's not really what you need. You need if you can get a committed, potentially stable, potentially successful proper team that can come in and enrich Formula One, you should definitely let it happen. But don't let don't let complete punts happen. Speaking of complete punts, let's look at the last four new teams to come into Formula One. So the the, the well, if we ignore Haas uh, and, and look at the 2010 entries, so you have USF1 that got precisely nowhere. They barely had a tub and was just a load of flim flam and, and hot air uh, and, and and a real humiliation for the sport. It was it was ridiculous. You have um, HRT, as it turned originally out, which was, Campos originally Meta Campos Meta 1, which was also late and lashed together at the last minute. Um, you then had the, the the Lotus team, as was, which became Caterham, that was kind of almost a last-minute um, entry. They, they were sort of not on the original list of ones given a franchise, but they were allowed in because they seemed credible. And, and so one of the others pulled out didn't they? i forget the exact time was it toyota place they took yeah i think it was toyota's place they got yeah they got to, they got toyota's but place. actually that team was the most sensible and credible one at the start they, of the, at the they start were, of they were indeed because they um and also marussia manor of virgin, virgin as they were then with their completely 3d printed and uh, uh computational fluid dynamic designed car that was also um basically a complete waste of time until sensible people got involved in that but if we look at what the the lotus stroke caterham team did the business model of that was fundamentally flawed because tony fernandez thought he could run it like an airline where you sort of reached a certain scale and eventually the sort of the money started to come in and you could start to pay off stuff um because you were getting income and whereas in an airline you you lease your aircraft so you're not actually having to buy a 747 you're just leasing it so that actually defrays your cost a little bit whereas with a formula one team you have to spend an awful lot of money up front and the problem with caterham stroke lotus was that they they never had the money to front up and do it properly they were always sort of living from hand to mouth and you saw that later with with the slow death of virgin stroke marussia stroke manor where you had the final year under an owner who thought that 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 point that jules bianchi had unlocked um uh, in monaco would mean that they would get prize money and that would guarantee another year of well, existence it, it, it for almost, that team, it almost did because obviously to, to qualify for column one which is that there's without going into too much detail there are there's column one and column two column two is based on your the previous year's constructors championship first through ten usually column one is a pot that it's split equally between those between who all qualify teams, for yeah. it in order to qualify for that you've got to finish in the top ten of the constructors in two of the previous three years now manor or Marussia ticked off one of those years and they were incredibly close to doing very it close. in uh, in fifth uh, 16 wasn't yeah, it yeah until Felipe Nasa uh, that my years final now, point yeah, yeah in, the, in that very wet Brazilian Grand Prix and and, and that comp- that one points finish completely torpedoed their entire business plan and the team folded just because the whole enterprise was predicated on on getting those column two uh, that, that column two income so that that is how thin some of those back of the team uh, back of the grid teams were they they really had not much to offer in the way of solid backing it was basically a gamble i think that is also um does also reflect a bit of a problem with the way the formula one 
money system works because if you're going to have teams that are worth having you want you don't want to freeze out one or two of them uh, from that that column on they need to have a have a share of it and you know and what happened with manor at the end of 2016 kind of illustrated the precariousness of that uh, of that whole thing but it, it is profoundly difficult to start a formula 1 team you know the last the last absolute 100% startup team that, that was kind of fully self-reliant really that's that stuck was sauber you know bar was in many ways, a startup team, but they did acquire Tyrrell, and then they they kind of carried over a bit of that. But it was almost that was almost a franchise takeover type thing. It's more because they they so even that, moved factories, exactly. didn't they? So they that, moved that, from Ockham. That was half a startup, but with with kind of a, a donor team for one of a of a better phrase. So it is it is fiendishly difficult to establish something just because of the as JBL was saying the sheer capital investment you need for facilities, etc. And yeah, you can talk about cost caps and this kind of thing all you like, but it's still enormous. It's still an enormous sum of money you need. And just that stack of cash you need to invest in just stuff before you even start doing your car is enormous. Just all this machinery and personnel and sort of things. Yeah, so uh, good luck to them. And it's good that, that teams are aspiring towards Formula One. And it's good that there are some credible names attached to it. So they're not ones you kind of shrug off out of hand and say, no, no, never. But it's like, yeah, the, 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 barrier, the, the, the barrier they have to clear is very high. It's not like you're going to get another Stefan GP entry uh, for the nth time. Yeah, the uh, the attempted continuation of Toyota. That was a fun uh, fun little saga. Very... With, with the engineer photoshopped out of the picture once it became apparent that no one liked it. Yes, uh, one of those uh, wonderful... Uh, last I heard, there was, still, there was still a room at Toyota some, a motorsport somewhere with all the details and various master plans that the Stefan people put together. But anyway, that's a story for another day. But yeah, Japanese Grand Prix this weekend. So uh, please do check out autosport.com for all the latest from there. And of course, our plus subscriber, all sorts of in-depth coverage there. Check out sister titles, motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and also Motorsport News. Of course, Autosport Magazine's out every Thursday. And the Autosport Podcast is out every Monday and Thursday as well. Available to subscribe free through your podcast issuer of choice. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.